Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I have Jason Galicchio in studio with me. He is a postdoctoral fellow in John Carlstrom's lab at the University of Chicago. Um, but he's going to tell us about some work he did a while back um, in association with MIT on uh, quantum entanglement. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. So quantum entanglement, a lot of people have heard about it, but um, why don't you really spell out for us exactly what it is? Sure. Um, let me start with what people thought quantum measurement was about and why it was mysterious. So in the early days of quantum mechanics, uh, people like Heisenberg discovered that you couldn't measure everything about a particle. If you tried to measure its position, say, then its momentum or its velocity would be totally uncertain. Um, and the way this came about was a little bit confusing. And so one of the ways that people thought it might happen is that the act of measurement itself might disturb the particle in a certain way. And so if you were measuring something with a known position and you decide to measure its position, you would get the answer you expect. But if you tried to measure its momentum, they thought, well, maybe the measurement process itself was, was screwing things up and you weren't getting an accurate measurement of the momentum. Basically, some randomness in the interaction uh, caused, caused you to measure a momentum that looked totally random. And this is where things stood for 15 years, maybe, until 1935 when Einstein and some other people pointed out that no, actually if you take quantum mechanics seriously and you apply it to not just a single particle but something like a pair of particles, there are situations where it looks like you can measure the position and the momentum of the pair of particles exactly. And this seemed a little bit confusing. So one of the examples of this that came out much later, but it's much easier to think about, is, is dealing with light and the polarization of light. So whenever you look at some light, there's electric and magnetic fields coming at your eyes and they're either vibrating up or down or left or right or they're twirling around and you can't see this yourself, but you can filter out different polarizations. So if you've ever been to the, a 3D movie you know that there are two versions of, of the scene projected, one for each eye, and you wear 3D glasses, and the left eye only lets through the images that are meant for the left eye, and if you only look through the left side, it'll totally block the image on the screen that was meant for the right eye. And the way they do this is that they project each eye's um, picture in light that's rotating either left or right, and then the, the 3D glasses you use filter out the left, left going light so that on the right side you only see what was meant for the right eye, and on the le left side you see what was meant for the left eye. So people discovered that you could set up situations where you shine a, a bright high energy green laser, say, at a crystal, and for every green photon, sometimes two red photons will come out and then they'll go far, far away from each other. And if you measure it with these 3D glasses, it turns out that no matter what you see on one side, you'll always see the exact same thing on the other side. And so in this situation, it's, it's clear that the measurement itself can't be completely affecting the, 
the polarization of the light because what you see on one side is always the same as what you see on the other side. Okay, maybe you say, in this situation, Heisenberg, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle doesn't apply, but for a single photon, it, it does apply if you measure the, the polarization not with 3D glasses, which measure the left or right circular orientation, but if you measure it with regular polarized sunglasses, which measure whether it's vibrating up or down or left and right, not whether it's twisting. So here for a single photon, you can always guarantee that you'll spit out photons that are always up and down, but then when you measure them with the left or right uh, circular twist, it'll be totally random. So in, in the situation of the, the crystal and the green laser and the two red photons, it turns out that um, no matter how you measure it, whether you use kind of the 3D sunglasses that measure the twist or whether you measure it with regular sunglasses that measure just the up and down or left and right, uh, you always get the same answer. And so until, well, for then people thought, well, okay, something else must be going on. There, there's this correlation between these photons that quantum mechanics predicts. And this is the entanglement. It's, it's the, the fact that two particles that are far away can be measured, and you measure them in a way that normally would produce a totally random result, but the totally random result you get by measuring one of these is always the same as the totally random result you get measuring the other one. And and the thing that is so fascinating about this is that um, it, part of quantum theory is that before you measure these particles, they exist, they actually don't they haven't chosen a state yet. They exist in kind of a superposition of states, and it's not until you measure them that they have to choose. And so if when you measure them, they have to choose, and they both choose the same one, that implies some kind of instantaneous communication. Is that right? Well, it's not necessarily communication, because the result you get is still random. You can't control one side by doing something on the other side. So unfortunately, you can't really communicate instantaneously with this. But it does seem like something is happening instantly. And yes, if you take the, the mathematics of quantum mechanics seriously and you follow the prescription that quantum mechanics describes, then something is happening instantly. Something, by measuring the, the particle on one side, you instantly change what you know about what will happen on the other side. Uh, whether you're actually changing something on the other side is something that experiments have been trying to, to probe. And the key to that is to understand whether whether the, the seemingly random results and the seeming correlations are, are a result of something that's really going on underneath the hood that quantum mechanics isn't capturing that produces these correlations or whether the description of quantum mechanics is really as good as it gets, and the the collapsing, the the effects that seem to be happening really, really are instantaneous effects. And if they are, that that would be breaking a law, right? I mean, that there's a reason why this is um, this is so interesting to physicists. Can you t can you tell us why uh, Einstein, who helped discover this theory, is was so famously against it? Right. So, 
it's it's a little bit subtle whether you're actually breaking a law or not, and this is still up for debate. But the reason why Einstein didn't like it was because his other major theory, the theory of relativity, prevented any influence from traveling faster than light. And if you have these particles uh, of light that are going off in opposite directions, and say they're going off for you know miles and miles and miles, and you measure something on one side, and it instantaneously affects something on the other side, then there's no way that something traveling at the speed of light could have gotten across because those particles were traveling at the speed of light away from each other. And so Einstein's concerns weren't exactly that this definitely violates a rule. They were more that the way we describe things seemed inconsistent with the way special relativity preferred to describe things. So his preferred solution to this was to say that, no, the, the mathematics of quantum mechanics with this business about measuring something on one side and having it suddenly physically influence what's going on the other side, uh, that's, that's not really what's happening. All that's happening is that our knowledge of what properties were on the other side suddenly changes and nothing actually about what was happening on the other side has to change. Um, and, and so this is where things stood for a while. People were debating back and forth. People took Einstein's side and said, yeah, we need to add something to quantum mechanics to describe what's really going on. And quantum mechanics is really just describing what our knowledge about this, uh, what our knowledge is. And that's why it seems like things can travel instantaneously. And then other people said, no, we have to take quantum mechanics seriously. And that's all there is. And there's nothing more to it. So the real breakthrough came in the 60s. It was exactly 50 years ago this month, actually. Uh, Irish physicist named John Bell put forth this uh, mathematical framework, this theory, that, that said that if, if we take Einstein's logic seriously and we say that, okay, something was really happening on both sides, and the only reason we see these correlations is because we're just learning about it as we measure. Uh, he said that in order to be consistent with special relativity and keep actual influences from going faster than the speed of light, we would not be able to explain all the correlations that quantum mechanics has. Um, in the simple case that I described before with the, with the sunglasses and, and the kind of either exact correlation or total randomness, yeah, both Einstein and quantum mechanics were totally consistent in that situation. But there are more subtle situations where you measure, you measure the light with slightly different choices. And in those more subtle situations, the, the result by assuming that something is really going on and, and taking Einstein's view seriously is totally inconsistent with the actual result that quantum mechanics predicts. This is something that they could have worked out back in the 30s when Einstein was uh, thinking about this and still around. But they just never considered the slightly more complicated case uh, until, until the 60s. And so suddenly the question became not one of philosophy, whether we should trust the mathematics of quantum mechanics just as a description of, of uh, our knowledge of the system, or whether we should trust it as 
the whole story and what's really going on. But suddenly it became an experimental question that you could actually test. Is, is Einstein's theory right, that the mathematics of quantum mechanics just describes our ignorance? And there's really something going on underneath that's really traveling along with each photon and, and then deciding at the last minute uh, without influencing anything else in the world what's really going on? Or do you have to accept the fact that something um, is, is happening seemingly instantaneously and, uh, and you can't separate out the, the, two, the two red photons, in my example, that are going opposite directions. You can't treat them independently. You always have to treat them as a single system. And so they tested this, I assume? Yeah, so in the late 60s, early 70s, they started doing more experiments, and all the experiments seemed to confirm what quantum mechanics predicted, that, uh, yeah, it really does seem like if you want to propose an explanation for these measurements that try to get at what's really going on, any of those kind of explanations really does involve uh, having to communicate things, having influences that, that are instantaneous, that are faster than light. And, and this is such a, a striking result. You know, it's certainly consistent with the quantum mechanics of the 20s, but it, it's still uh, a, 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 a striking result that people have tried to poke holes in these experiments and say, well, you know, the experiment that, that the first group of people did didn't really test whether influences travel faster than the speed of light or not because um, the thing they chose to measure on each side was always the same. And so it, it would be easy for whatever influence was directing those, uh, those results to, to, to know what was going to happen on both sides of the experiment, to know what was, what was going to be measured, and to kind of set up the results in advance to, to fake the quantum mechanical results. And so the next round of experiments in, in the 80s said, well, rather than keep, keep what we're measuring the same, let's try to change it as often as we can, and let's try to change it so fast that while the, the photons, while the particles of light were traveling, the settings change. And so it would be harder for, for an influence, for, you know, for something that was trying to fake the, the strong correlations of quantum mechanics to anticipate what was going to be measured. And uh, then later on in the late 90s, another round of experiments came where instead of just switching it back and forth between two settings, they said, well, that, that's kind of also predictable if you're switching it back and forth. Let's try to switch it between random settings and switch it between random settings so fast that um, things change while the photons are in flight and no influence could travel back and forth. Um, and, and so that's where things stand now. The, the best experiments are in terms of how far away the photons travel and how efficiently things are being measured are, are being done by a group out, to, out of the University of Vienna. And the biggest experiments are being done between two of the Canary Islands. Uh, and these are separated by over 100 kilometers apart. And they fire these entangled photons across the, over the water between two of the islands. And while the photons are in flight, they randomly pick what aspect about them they're going to measure. And even over this big distance, and even with these random picking of measurements, 
the results of quantum mechanics still are confirmed. And so it really seems like uh, if if you want to explain things in terms of some local local interactions between the photons and the measuring devices, then yeah, you're forced to to deal with this instantaneous, faster than light communication. So that all sounds pretty good, <laughs> but it's not good enough for you, right? You still think that there's room for some kind of cosmic conspiracy here? Well, yeah, I'm I'm pretty convinced. I think it's really good, but if if we want to do the ultimate experiment, I think we could do one step better. So right now, those random numbers are the random settings, the things that determine which aspect of the, the photons you're going to measure on each side. They're coming very quickly so that they can't be communicated, but all of the devices that are generating those random numbers, everything was uh, able to communicate with everything else only a few milliseconds before the experiment was run. And so it's still possible, although I don't really have a mechanism, I don't really see how, uh, it's still possible within special relativity that somehow uh, what look like random settings were really predictable or forced to forced upon each side of the experiment by uh, by something that they all shared in common a few milliseconds in the past. So for example, this this crystal is is being shot with these green photons and it's sending out pairs of red photons. Uh, it's perfectly consistent with relativity, although again, I have no mechanism that something from that location is sending out instructions saying, you should be measuring, you should be measuring the photon with the, the circular polarized sunglasses or you know, 3D glasses rather than the, the linear uh, regular polarized sunglasses. Uh, and that is incredibly hard to rule out on physics grounds alone because no matter what experiment we set up, everything is pretty close to everything else in terms of light travel time. And so it's, it's really hard to guarantee that the what you're choosing to measure on each side is independent of everything else in the experiment. So the thing that my colleagues and I proposed doing was using light from far, far away, from, from stars that are thousands of light years away, or from quasars, which are really, really bright galaxies that are billions of light years away, or even from the cosmic microwave background, which is this afterglow left over from the Big Bang, which is the oldest and the farthest light that exists. And if we were to use, say, let's talk about the quasars, because that's a pretty, a pretty simple example. These, these are, we think they're giant, very young galaxies that are emitting extremely bright light uh, very early in the universe, only uh, when the universe was maybe a fifth as old as it is now. And if, if we look to our right and we see some quasar light coming in, and we look to our left and we see some a different quasar on the other side coming in, then that light from those quasars is just hitting us now. And if, if the quasars were going to try to communicate with each other, they would have to pass us and keep going to the other quasar. And it's, it's already, that light has already been traveling for 10 billion years. 
and it would have to travel another 10 or so billion years to get to the other quasar. But the universe isn't that old. It's, it's only been 13 billion years since, since the, the Big Bang. And so the entire history of the quasar on the left is unknown to the quasar on the right. There's no way that they could have communicated since the Big Bang. And so if the goal is really to choose uh, whether you, what you want to measure about these photons in a way that can't be predicted or can't be influenced by uh, anything local or anything uh, from, from the other side, you know, choosing what to measure about the left photon this is what to measure about the right photon. You want those to be totally independent and guarantee that there's no way that that coordination could have taken place. You could use light from these quasars and ask, okay, this particular photon I'm getting from this quasar is a little bit more red or a little bit more blue than average. And then choose whether you want to measure it with the, the kind of 3D circular polarized sunglasses or the regular linear polarized sunglasses based, based on that. And the same thing with the photon on the right side. And since those quasars weren't able to talk to each other since any time after the Big Bang, uh, then those settings that we pick based on that light have to be totally independent of each other. So so if you find what what Bell and and future physicists found, then entanglement theory stands as it is. That's right. If, if we get the result that quantum mechanics predicts, which is the result that we expect to get, um, then, yeah, entanglement still holds. Uh, it still appears as though any, any, quote, deeper explanation of the kind that Einstein wanted needs to involve communication faster than light. Um, or you have to accept that, no, the the conspiracy really goes all the way back to the Big Bang, and all this coordination <laughs> was already in place to determine the detailed, minute settings of every quasar photon uh, in exactly the right way to 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 uh, get you to measure measure aspects of the photon that are predictable. So, so either you have to accept the the kind of interesting entanglement properties of quantum mechanics, or you have to accept kind of a grand universal conspiracy, not just one that operates locally within a few milliseconds of kind of coordination time. And what happens if you don't get the correlations that they saw? Oh, well, that would be great. <laughs> if, if we did the experiment... For, for, not for quantum theorists. Oh, I think quantum theorists would love it because they'd finally have something new and different to, okay. <laughs> They're bored. to think about. <laughs> quantum mechanics works too well. It's very frustrating. <laughs> Ever since the 20s, every, yeah, my experiment, stuff works too well. <laughs> every experiment that's ever been done has, has uh, confirmed the predictions of quantum mechanics, which is great for quantum mechanics. But yeah, if, if, our, if we set up this experiment and somehow find that as we go from using local sources of randomness to using stars as, as our uh, means of picking what aspect we're going to measure, to going further away using light from other galaxies, using light from these really distant galaxies, quasars. If the, the correlations no longer hold, if there comes a point where suddenly we transition from what quantum mechanics predicts to the 
the kind of upper limit that regular classical communication allows, then that would be great. That would say that you know, all this mysterious stuff about quantum mechanics is, is really just some weird artifact of, of us fooling ourselves into thinking that we can choose whatever we want to measure, whereas really we're predetermined or destined or at least predictable in, in what we have been choosing to measure. Um, and, and maybe there is some characteristic distance that this happens, but my bet would be on the, on the results of quantum mechanics holding true because history has shown that the harder people probe, the more resilient the results of quantum mechanics are. But it's still an interesting experiment to do because even if the results of quantum mechanics holds, it still forces any alternatives to be all-encompassing, to, to involve correlations that were set up at the beginning of the universe rather than something that is local. Are you going to do these experiments? Um, I'm hoping to be involved. So I went to a meeting over the summer in Vienna um, where a lot of people who attend, a lot of people who attended were people who do these kind of experiments and think about these kind of things. And the, uh, the group leader in Vienna was really interested in this kind of stuff and really interested in incorporating some version of this into the experiments that they are already doing on the Canary Islands. And the experiments that they're doing are, are pretty cool and pretty heroic, and incorporating this extra little bit of quasar stuff, certainly incorporating the extra little bit of using starlight stuff, uh, starlight photons to pick what aspect you want to measure, that's actually not nearly as technically challenging or as expensive as, as what's already there. So adding on this additional piece uh, will increase the distance over which these correlations have to be in place if, you, if this is the explanation for why we see the quantum correlations, which are stronger than any classical correlation. So I've been involved in talking to him and talking to some of the people in the group about how we would actually set this up and uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to work with them and maybe even building something and going out there and installing it and uh, adding this, this extra astronomy aspect to these experiments that have traditionally been totally Earth-based, Earth-focused. Great. Um, can I ask you a couple more basic questions about entanglement? Sure. How exactly do particles become entangled? That's a good question. So... Almost all of the examples that I can think of, uh, I think all the examples we know about at their core involve um, some, some creation mechanism of, of these pairs. So in the example I gave, you shine some high energy green light into a crystal and two low energy red photons come out. And because of the way that interaction works, they they are entangled. They share this. Uh, they share something. They you measure them, and they end up giving these correlations. Now you can do interesting things with these. You can uh, take one of them and have it interact with a, a third photon and kind of transfer the entanglement to that third photon. So it's not monogamous. It's not, no. <laughs> uh, and, and so, uh, right, m most of the examples of entanglement creation involve creating two particles in a way that 
you don't know and you can't know which which has which properties and then even after you measure them they're still entangled they're entangled forever once they become entangled is that right well can they become unentangled the act of measurement in in the kind of straight uh, traditional quantum mechanical prediction. Once you measure something, uh, you you destroy the entanglement. You you turn what is a kind of mis I don't want to say mysterious a a quantum phenomena into just classical information about what you've measured. The results of the measurement. You can write them down on pieces of paper, um, and and yes, those. Results can be correlated, but those results themselves just act. They don't act like these kind of mysterious quantum particles where you you probe the the recordings and interesting things happen. So in the in the traditional picture, once you make the measurement, the experiment is over and the entanglement is is done and you've you've collapsed the the quantum mechanical state. Now, if you want to take quantum mechanics seriously and try to describe that measurement process in a quantum mechanical way and try to describe recording those measurements in a quantum mechanical way and describe thinking about those measurements in a quantum mechanic. If you want to take that quantum mechanics seriously as an explanation for everything that you do and that is done in the universe, then things always remain entangled. Once you have an entangled particle and then you measure them, then those uh, measuring devices become entangled with each other. Okay. And once you record those measurements, those recordings become entangled with each other. And then once people look at those measurements, the people become entangled. And it's perfectly consistent to extrapolate that to the entire universe. Uh, and it's, it's not actually clear whether a line should be drawn or whether a line needs to be drawn. So uh, Okay. So... <laughs> It's just one big entangled mess after that, right? That, that is the, if you want to take quantum mechanics at face value and say quantum mechanics is by far the best theory we have, let's, let's extrapolate it as, as far as we think it can go. And yeah, the entire universe is one big entangled <laughs> quantum mechanical. Kind of like my, my necklace collection, <laughs> um, hopelessly entangled. Um, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been great. Thank you. This has been. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Grok Science Show. Um, for Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grok's crew, I'm Samantha Thomas, and I was just talking to Jason Glickio. Uh, we're here next week, so tune in again. And until then, keep on grokking.